Hello, YA fantasy and adventure fans, and welcome to episode two of Armin Pogarian's Penny Preston and the Raven's Talisman. My name is Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on Penny Preston and the Raven's Talisman. Penny learns that her misalignment with our universe has made her the linchpin in a higher dimensional being's plan to invade our world. The lies she tells to keep this a secret are taking a toll on her and driving a wedge between her and her best friend, Duncan. Will the pressure of saving the universe and her fraying friendship be too much for her to handle? How will her enemies respond to her bonding with a cat? Chapter 6 Monday, after school in Mr. Murden's office. I see you found a felt top hat, said Mr. Murden. Yeah, it took all day Sunday, and it's a little beat up. You don't expect me to wear it, do you? Of course not. You're going to pull objects through it. Penny scrunched her nose. I thought we were saving the universe, not preparing for my school's talent show. We are. After the cards, the next step is pulling objects through a rift. Okay, but why do I need a top hat to do that? Technically, you don't. But opening a rift requires energy. Most of it goes into the rift, but a small amount becomes waste energy. It usually dissipates harmlessly as heat or a small static charge. Moving objects through a rift creates more waste energy, and the fabric in the hat helps dissipate it. You're going to be moving many objects today, and without the hat, a large static charge would build up in the room. So that's why the lights flickered in the cafeteria when I threw the tapioca. Yes, your panicked rift opening created a lot of excess energy, which dissipated through the wiring, shorting out the lights. If you'd have been in the kitchen, toast might have flown from the toasters. Penny chuckled. Mr. Murden smiled at her. Other times, the energy moves into the rift, creating a chill. People who encounter time folds often feel cold, or under the right atmospheric conditions, they see fog. Now, are you ready to begin? She nodded. Let's start with something small. There are several paper clips on top of that pile of books. Without getting up from your seat, get one and place it on my desk. Penny concentrated and opened a rift in the center of the hat. Good. Now look into the rift and transpose the image of the paper clip through the rift. Once you do that, reach your hand into the rift and retrieve the paper clip. Remember not to close the rift until after your hand clears the rim of the hat. Penny reached her hand toward the rift. When her fingers touched its surface, freezing pulses shot into her hand. It was like plunging her hand into a bucket of water in the middle of winter. As she pushed her hand further in, the icy cold dissipated. She grabbed the paperclip, pulled it back through the top hat, and placed it on Mr. Murden's desk. Then she closed the rift. To her surprise, a few beads of sweat dripped down her cheeks. The rift is freezing. You're probably exerting too much effort. The excess energy is creating the extreme cold. 
It's nothing to worry about. With a little practice, you'll improve. The opening will still be cold. After all, it does cross into higher dimensions. But it'll be more bearable. Before I started, you told me to make sure my hand was clear of the hat's rim before I closed it. What would happen if it wasn't? Would my fingers get cut off and left in another dimension? No, nothing like that. There's a chance that the energy spike from the closing of the rift would dissipate itself through your hand. Once you're more proficient, it wouldn't matter much at all, but right now you'd probably get a rather nasty shock. Not dangerous, but certainly unpleasant. They proceeded to retrieve another paperclip, a pencil, and a pen. These are all too easy. Can you give me something more challenging? All right. I'd like you to place Barclay's treatise on prime number generation in my lap, open to page 173. I'll even give you a little help. It's that big heavy book at the bottom of the tall stack of 23 books in the corner. Penny created her rift and reached through the top of the hat. Her plan was to remove each book in the stack, retrieve the prime number book, and then restack them. After she removed the top three books, a better idea struck her. She placed her hand on the bottom book and visualized it slipping into another dimension. Once she did that, it took no effort to remove the book without disturbing the rest of the stack. She opened it to page 173, carefully placed it in Mr. Murden's lap, removed her hand, and closed the rift. Impressive, but you forgot one, or should I say three, things. After unstacking all of those books to get to the bottom, why did you forget to replace the top three? Did something happen? Penny pursed her lips and let out a sigh. I started to unstack them, then realized that was the hard way. You altered the form of Barclays, didn't you? Yeah, I guess I forgot about the first three books I moved before I thought of that. I can put them back if you want me to. Mr. Murden smiled broadly. Don't worry about the books. I'll get to them later. You've done very well. I'd like to take things to the next level. What do you think? Would you like to try translocating an object outside your visual range? Sure. How do I do that? Before you create your rift, create a mental image of the target. Then, as you open the rift project, place that visualization into it. It may take a few moments for the image in the rift to clarify. When it does, your rift will be anchored, and you'll be able to use it. Like focusing a camera lens? Exactly. If you don't focus the lens, you get a fuzzy picture. In the case of a rift, you might grab something you shouldn't. One trainee mistook the flowers on a woman's dress as the real thing. What happened? Let's just say the fellow next to her never figured out why she slapped him. Penny chuckled. Yes, it was amusing. To avoid any problems, let's try something relatively close. Do you like Tolkien? Penny grinned. Of course. Good. Me too. It's been a while since I read The Hobbit. I believe there's a brilliant new illustrated copy in the library. Would you be so kind as to get it for me? She summoned an image of the library into her mind, opened a rift, and projected the image through it. It started blurry, like watching a video over a bad internet connection. The more she concentrated, the clearer the picture became until it eventually snapped into focus. Penny shook her head. When she thought of the library, she had pictured its entrance, and that's where the rift anchored itself. 
she should have thought of the precise bookshelf. Tolkien's books were in the far back corner of the library. She'd been to that row of shelves so many times. It would be easy to navigate there through her mental picture. At first it was. She visualized her way past the front desk and the study tables in the front of the library. When she passed the last table, a wave of freezing energy shot through her body, and the edges of her vision faded. Had her hand accidentally touched the edge of the top hat? She couldn't feel it. Mr. Murden had said the rifts could get cold if she dumped too much energy into them, and she was excited. She paused and took a deep breath, then released it slowly. It was still cold, but her vision seemed clearer. She pressed on. With each step, the temperature dropped precipitously. What had been a winter day in Piper Falls rapidly transformed into the blistering cold of an Arctic night. To complete the Arctic setting, everything suddenly went black. The only difference was that there were no stars. On top of that, she couldn't move a muscle. She was frozen in an ink-black patch of nothingness. The entire scene reminded her of the nightmare when the tangle of tentacles enveloped her and stole her senses. Then she heard something, a low-pitched scraping sound, followed by a thud. Was she losing her mind, or had she really heard something? Moments of silence passed. She began to doubt, but then the sound repeated, once, twice, and then a third time, she knew that sound. It was the unmistakable sound of Master Poe's voice. He was talking to Mr. Murden. It was barely audible, but if she concentrated, she could make out most of the words. What happened? Master Poe asked. I'm not sure, but I think she strayed too far from her rift's anchor point. So she's just fainted. She's an extraordinary talent, but I think I've been pushing her too hard. You're right about her talent, but we don't have much time before the next confluence at Halloween. I know, but I'm already going faster than ever before. It took Art and the others months to do what she's done in weeks. We are fortunate the Kite Seath has been so diligent with his protection. How did you find him? It's not like the old days when you just went into the forest at the new moon with a little fresh fish. True, I suspect Penny's talent drew our Kite Seath here. Have you found who was behind the incident in the cafeteria? I think our opponents were as surprised as we were when Penny closed their portal, but they're also quite good. I've flown all over town, but I haven't found a summoning circle. She's quite an extraordinary girl. True, but it will take more than hurled pudding to stop their next attempt. Are you confident she can stand up to it? No matter how gifted she is, succeeding alone will not be easy. Perhaps you should reconsider your strategy. After a long pause, Mr. Murden replied, You gave me the same advice before, and I listened. You may have forgotten, but things didn't work out so well then. I haven't forgotten. Do not dismiss my advice too lightly. Her failure means ruin for us all. Penny heard the rustle of wings and the scratchy sound of Master Poe's talons on the windowsill. I leave her to your good keeping. After Master Poe departed, 
Mr. Murden said, I'm aware of the stakes, old friend, and I know where my duty lies. The darkness lifted from Penny's senses. She felt a cool, damp towel on her head and opened her eyes to see Mr. Murden smiling down at her. He gave her a glass of water. She drank deeply. Then she told him what happened. I suspected as much. It's my fault. I should have warned you about moving too far from your anchor. It's a good lesson to learn in a safe training session rather than a real crisis. I've been pushing you hard. You've made excellent progress. Two days later, Penny received a strange note from Mr. Murden. Other than being on his stationery, it was nothing like the others he'd sent. There was no mention of their project, and it was typed instead of in his normal longhand. Penny, meet me in my office after school. M. Her stomach flipped and flopped as she walked past the library toward Mr. Murden's office. It didn't feel extra-dimensional, but after yesterday's incident, she wasn't going to take any chances, so she ran down the hall to the administrative wing. For once, Mrs. Lester was not on her phone. In fact, she wasn't even at her desk. Penny was supposed to wait for her to return, but she didn't. Instead, she found the log and signed herself in. So much for security, she thought, as she walked to Mr. Murden's office. The door was partially open. She knocked once and walked in. The overhead lights and the desk lamp were off, and the blinds were shut, making it eerily dark. She looked around the office but saw no sign of Mr. Murden. His desk was neat and orderly with none of the normal piles of paper, it appeared he had left for the day, but then why the note? She heard a rustling sound from the bookshelf. She turned and saw Master Poe glide down onto the desk. Hello, Penny. You seem surprised to see me. Didn't you get my note? You wrote it? I thought it was from Mr. Murden. How could you think it was from Murden? He always writes his notes longhand. Some nonsense about security. I thought you and I needed to talk. I obviously can't write longhand, so I typed it. I even sent it through the intra-school mail system. Honestly, I... How do you type the letter? I used the hunt-and-peck method. He cackled at his pun and looked at Penny, expecting her to see the humor. When she didn't, he raised his wings in a gesture approximating a shrug. I even signed it M. I wasn't trying to be mysterious. Why didn't you just fly to my house if you wanted to talk to me? If you'd let me finish instead of interrupting, you wouldn't need to ask questions. Are you like this with Murden, too? Penny looked to the floor but said nothing. As I was trying to say, with that boy following you so closely, I couldn't find a good time or place, so I invited you to a meeting. What boy? Someone's following me? You know that boy who's always with you but seems to have... Lost his shine these last few weeks. Duncan? Master Poe bobbed his head up and down. Penny shook her head. Why is he following me? I suppose he views himself as your protector. Penny started to smile, but quickly dropped it. He even seemed to notice me one day. I had to work a little of my stuff on him. Penny cut him off. You did not! What did you do to him? You better not have hurt him. There you go, interrupting again. 
Don't worry. I didn't do anything permanent. I simply encouraged him to forget that he noticed me. I was as gentle as a lamb, nothing more than a fuzzy memory and a sudden desire to eat, which, near as I can tell, is no rare thing for the boy. Penny's face relaxed, but only a little. Honestly, Penny, Duncan will be fine. Do you want to hear why I asked you here, or would you rather badger me for something neither of us can change? Okay, but he better be all right. He will be. Now, let's get on to the point of our rendezvous. I trust Murden told you about me and how I became trapped here in your dimension. Penny nodded. Would you mind telling me what he told you? I want to make sure he didn't miss anything and perhaps give you a little more perspective on things. He bobbed his beak up and down as he listened to Penny. Then Master Poe said, He didn't leave much out. However, there are some things he didn't tell you that you should know. He and I disagree. He's caught up in past mistakes. It's funny how things change. There was a time when Murden pushed the envelope and I had to restrain him. In any event, I feel you need to know more and that we should leave certain decisions to you. That's why I invited you to this meeting without Murden. What exactly did he leave out? First, let me ask you a few more questions. If you had to describe how you felt since you found out your misaligned, with just one word, what would it be? Alone, Penny said, casting her eyes downward. Interesting. Why did you choose alone, as opposed to scared or overwhelmed? Oh, I'm those other things too, especially scared at times. But I've been scared before. With my eyes being different colors, everyone sees me as a bit odd. But I've always had someone to help me deal with that. But this is so fantastic, so amazing, so frightening. And I have to keep it all to myself, because nobody would understand. I don't even think anyone would believe me. I've never felt so lonely before. Her voice trailed off to a whisper. She absently rubbed her brown eye with her hand to brush a tear away. What if I told you there was someone you could talk to, someone you could trust to help you? Would you be interested in someone like that? Of course. Is there another misaligned person? No, I'm afraid you're the only one who's got that necessary talent. I was thinking of bringing someone else onto the team, someone who's already demonstrated his support for you. I was thinking of the Duncan boy. Penny's heartbeat quickened at the thought of talking with Duncan about all these fantastic things. He was her best, most trusted friend, and apparently her protector as well. She even smiled briefly, before her sense of reality returned. Are you crazy? What would you have me do? Walk up to him with you on my shoulder and say, Hi, Duncan, I'd like you to meet my pal, Master Poe. He may look like an ordinary raven, but he's really a scientist from the seventh dimension. He accidentally trapped himself in a raven's body while observing us. 
He needs our help to keep others from his dimension from entering our universe, where they plan to establish themselves as gods and lord it over our world. Do you want in or what? He'll think I'm nuts. Of course, if you approach him like that, but there is another alternative. I'm listening. Open the bottom drawer of Murden's desk. Penny walked around the desk, moved Murden's chair, and opened the drawer. There should be a small leather bag. Pick it up and empty it into your hand. A black, lacquered box tumbled out into her hand. Other than the silver hinges and clasp, it was plain with no writing or designs on it. Penny was about to open it, but stopped when Master Poe yelled, Wait! Before you open the box, I need to explain a few things to you. The contents of that box enable the bearer to experience the higher dimensions. Like the mirror? No, the mirror translates things into the view from the higher dimensions. The contents of the box convert the higher dimensions into recognizable images in this dimension. Duncan will see and hear things as you do. He will even understand me. Just like me? Not exactly. Duncan will sense the higher dimensions, but he will not be able to directly interact with them. He would see you reach for the tapioca and throw it, but he wouldn't be able to do it himself. Kind of like a movie? More like a play. A few of the higher dimensional beings may notice him. Unfortunately, those most inclined to notice are my enemies. I'm afraid they take a rather dim view of lesser beings interfering with them. Penny frowned. Sorry, I meant no offense by the term, but it is how my enemies view lower dimensional beings. Who are your enemies, and why are they after you? I'm an outcast in my slice of the multiverse. My studies suggested inhabitants of your universe were, how do I put this delicately, worthy of existence. Many in my dimension view the inhabitants of your dimension in the same way that you would view a cartoon character. It's something that can be amusing, but if it ceased to exist, it's no great loss. My research threatened their beliefs. I'm a heretic, and heretics have enemies. My enemies want to prevent me from proving my theory. Mr. Murden said you were pushed through your window into our dimension. Did your enemies push you through to silence you? They are indirectly responsible for my exile. During my last experiment, they attacked. My apprentice and sympathetic colleagues protected me while I created my window. Great energies were discharged and absorbed by both sides. It makes me shudder to think of the rage that observing your world brought to my people. The enemy was stronger than expected, and I sensed they were going to break through. I had scant moments to act. I should have destroyed my work and let them capture me, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. Instead, Master Poe paused and shook his head from side to side. Instead, I grasped at an unproven anomaly in the nature of my creation. There was a chance that I could do more than peer through my window. With the right key, I could open it. 
and escape into your dimension, safe from my enemies. So you chose to come here. Yes, I am an exile of my own choosing. However, there's more. I only just escaped from my enemies as I slipped through the open window. I was successful in destroying it on my way through, but they saw my escape. They're still after you, aren't they? They realized that if I hadn't destroyed the window, I would still have all of my extra-dimensional abilities here in this universe. I'm afraid that in my pride and my fear, I revealed the possibilities of your universe to them. They're no longer bent on just destroying me. They intend to build a new portal and amuse themselves here. So this isn't my fault? There is plenty of blame to go around, but none of it belongs to you. One thing I don't understand. If your people weren't able to enter our dimension until you created your window, then how did the Bodic get here? You said they've been here longer than you. If you created the first portal, how is that possible? The Bodic aren't from my universe. I thought you said they were from the higher dimensions. They are, but their universe has five dimensions. Mine has seven the larger the difference in dimensions between universes, the harder it is to open a portal between them. It was easier for the Bodok to reach your universe. Their arrival coincides with the rise of deities from your early civilizations, and my appearance neatly matches their downfall. You mean you? Yes, I killed Zeus, Apollo, Ra, and the others. Well, I didn't kill them, but when I closed my portal, I also closed theirs. Cut off from their universe, their powers faded. You trapped them, too? Master Poe nodded his beak. Now, there are a few other things I should tell you before we get back to the box. Have you ever wondered why you're misaligned? I figured it was just luck. That's certainly part of it. But there's a little bit more. Remember when we told you that Halloween ghost stories have their roots in extra-dimensional interactions? Penny nodded. We refer to those times as confluences, periods when the boundaries between the dimensions are weaker and interactions between them become more likely. Halloween is one of the stronger and more reliable ones. When were you born? August 11th. Is that important? You probably know that human gestation averages around 40 weeks. Sure, we learned that in health class last year. But did you also know that Halloween is about 40 weeks before your birthday? There's no way to know for certain, but I bet you were conceived on Halloween night. Penny chuckled. What's so funny? I overheard my parents say the same thing. There was a blackout on Halloween the year before I was born. Solar weather impacts the dimensional fabric and the electrical grid. I bet if you look at the record for that Halloween, you'll find there were powerful solar flares around that time. I'm sure there were lots of people conceived on that night and born on the same day as me. Why aren't they misaligned, too? There was probably just enough extra-dimensional energy to misalign one person. 
and I just happened to be that person. True enough. Now, do you have any other questions before we get back to the box? And Duncan. Just one. How did you get your name? Instead of names, my people used titles relating to our proficiency. Despite being an outcast, I was the recognized master of knowledge for the boundary limitations of lower-dimensional interactions and the beings found therein. That's how others thought of me and how I thought of myself. That was a bit long for Murden, so we shortened it. Initially, he called me Master No, because I seemed to know everything, and whenever he wanted to try something new, I would say no. Penny suppressed a chuckle, which escaped as a high-pitched giggle. Master Poe shrugged his wings. Yes, he seemed to think that play on words was clever, too. Through the years, he occasionally changes my name, but it's been Master Poe since he read The Raven. It doesn't matter to me. Murden's a good companion. It's been hard on him. If changing my name eases his burden, I can live with it. Penny smiled. It's nice to know that you care. Yes, well, speaking of companions, would you like to learn how to use the box? Absolutely. It contains transdimensional stones. Inside the box is a pocket of higher dimensional space. When you open it, the stones will descend into this dimension, however they will retain a connection to the higher dimensions. The stones will only work for the person holding them, but they must be bound in silver. Any other metal will corrupt the cross-dimensional link, and the stones will fail. Why silver? And how am I supposed to bind them with silver to Duncan? Silver is a strong conductor of interdimensional energy. That's why it takes silver bullets to defeat a werewolf. Binding the stones in silver helps preserve the connection once you take them from the box. As for the form, jewelry works well. Duncan wears a silver necklace. His grandmother gave it to him for his birthday. He never takes it off, even when he swims. Good. Inside the box, the stones are in a higher dimension. Before you open it, picture in your mind what you want the charm to look like. Let me know when you have it. Duncan was quite picky about what he wore, but was very proud of his Celtic heritage. She remembered an image from one of the posters in his room. It was three conjoined spirals with one red, one blue, and one yellow stone at the outer end of each. After she solidified the image in her mind, she nodded to Master Poe. Now, look into my eyes, and we will reach into the higher dimensions together. Once again, Penny saw the blue, yellow, and red twinkling lights in Master Poe's eyes, but this time she didn't feel herself slipping into hypnosis. Lines of power flowed through them into her. Keep the image of the charm in your mind. Concentrate on the image. He repeated this five times. Now open the box. Penny opened it and found a perfect replica of the amulet she'd imagined. Three spirals of silver with a blue, yellow, and red stone at the end of each spiral. 
She glanced from the amulet to Master Poe and back several times before saying, It's exactly what I pictured. It's called a Celtic Triscala. You provided the image and the connection to the higher planes. I provided the knowledge and the energy to complete the transformation. We make a good team. Chapter 7 Master Poe told Penny to give the charm to Duncan as soon as possible and not to tell anyone about their conversation. He was quite insistent on both points. No biggie, Penny thought to herself. She was going to meet Duncan in the library after school on Wednesday to work on their Mesopotamian project. She would give it to him then. Besides, whom would she tell? Or perhaps more correctly, who would believe her? She turned the corner and saw that Mrs. Lester had returned and was once again attached to her phone. The clipboard was where Penny had left it. She entered her departure time, smiled at Mrs. Lester, then noticed the day on the sign-out log. It was Wednesday. She was so focused on the mystery of Master Poe's note that she forgot she was supposed to be meeting with Duncan in the library today. Her face turned red. Without thinking, she loudly said, the library. At the sound of her voice, Mrs. Lester dropped the receiver from her mouth and covered it with her hand. Oh, Miss Preston, are you all right? Is something the matter? Your face is so red. Would you like something to drink? No, thanks. I'm late for a meeting. Mrs. Lester wrinkled her nose and gave her a funny sort of smile. There, there. I'm sure everything will be fine. As soon as she said fine, she uncapped the receiver and pushed it back to her mouth. Penny hardly noticed. It was 3.45. She was supposed to meet Duncan at 3.15. She ran to the library as fast as she could. Duncan couldn't believe it. He had been looking forward to their project meeting for more than a week. He was sure they agreed to meet in the library at 3.15. He glanced down at his watch. It was 3.45. Penny had forgotten. That wasn't like her. But she hadn't been herself since the food fight. Something happened then, and despite his sleuthing, he still didn't know what. He would wait until four o'clock. If she wasn't there by then, he'd go home. He pulled out The Hobbit. Penny told him it was really good, and Mark gave it two thumbs up. He liked the idea of dwarves and dragons, but he struggled with the first chapter. What exactly did bewothered mean? not to mention be-bother and confusticate. As he pondered these words, trying to get through page 19, there was a loud crash and a backpack appeared on his table. Moments later, a huffing and puffing penny thumped into the chair across from him. Between pants, she said, Sorry, uh, to be late. Duncan continued reading his book. After a few seconds, he lowered it. Confusticate and be bother you, girl. Penny caught her breath and stared at him. Huh? What did you say? Duncan remained silent. Duncan, I'm so sorry. I got a note from Mr. Murden asking me to see him in his office right after school, and I just... He cut her off mid-sentence. Don't try and flummox me with your bewothering excuses. What started as a slight smirk grew into a smile then a giggle, and finally a full-throated laugh. Penny joined him. After she regained control of herself, she said, 
I see you've been having trouble with the hobbit. They laughed again. They finally calmed down when they heard Mrs. Haskell announce over the PA system. It is now four o'clock and the library will close in 15 minutes. Great, we've lost another day on our project, Duncan said. No, we can still get some work done. How? You heard Mrs. Haskell. The library's closing in 15 minutes. The school library's closing, but the town library is open till nine o'clock tonight. It's probably got a lot of information on Hammurabi's code. Maybe, but if we go to the town library now, what will we do for dinner? Always thinking with your stomach, aren't you? Duncan shrugged. We can stop by my house on the way, make some sandwiches, grab an apple or two, and pick up a few of my mom's oatmeal chocolate chip cookies. She baked them last night, so they're nice and fresh. Your mom baked a batch of oatmeal chocolate chip cookies last night? A double batch. Duncan stood up and started stuffing his things into his backpack. Okay, what are you waiting for? We've got work to do, and it's not going to get done hanging out here. Duncan loved her mom's oatmeal chocolate chip cookies more than just about anything. Like some sixth sense, he usually found a way to be around whenever she was baking them. There were times when Penny felt jealous, thinking he only came around because of the cookies, but she knew that was silly. On their way, they saw another sign for a missing black tomcat named Rascal. He had been missing for two days. Rough being a cat in Piper Falls, Duncan said. What do you mean? That's the third missing cat sign I've seen in the last few days. Something's been raiding local farms. No sightings, but there were strange cat-like tracks at Fuller's Farm. They were too big for a house cat. Whatever it is, it might be responsible for the disappearing cats, too. A house cat might stand up to a fox or get away from a raccoon. But if it's a bobcat... He shook his head. Penny immediately thought of Simon. She wasn't sure if there was some connection between the disappearing cats and Simon, or if she was worrying too much. To be on the safe side, she decided to check up on him when she got home. Penny's house was only a short detour from their route to the library. They stopped and quickly made their sandwiches. While Duncan called home, Penny checked in on Simon. He was lying on the floor in a spot of the afternoon sun. He lifted his head and twitched his tail when she looked in on him, as if he couldn't be bothered to do anything else. Satisfied he was okay, Penny stepped back into the kitchen where her mother was now on the phone with Mrs. O'Brien. She waved goodbye, then she and Duncan went to the library. The library was several blocks from Penny's house. As she and Duncan turned the corner onto Elm, they saw Mr. Potter, shaking a sign and waving papers at every passerby. They all ignored him. I wonder what Mr. Potter is protesting now. He's got a sign with a giant maple leaf on it, Penny said. All right, he wants the town to rename Elm Street to Maple Avenue. Penny turned to her friend. How do you know that? I ran into him last week. He told me it's been 70 years since the last elm tree in town died and that renaming the street Maple Avenue would help the local maple syrup farms. Maybe he'll even win this one. My dad calls him the patron saint of lost causes. Remember his idea to repave the town streets with cobblestones to eliminate potholes? Penny nodded. I wish him luck, but we don't have time to talk with him now. They both waved to Mr. Potter and walked several blocks before crossing the street at the Strand Theater. Entering the library, they saw a poster announcing the entertainment schedule for the week. Duncan grabbed Penny's shoulder, stopping her. 
Hey, what's the big idea? He pointed to the sign. Presto Pete, practitioner of the prestigious arts, 7 p.m. in the first floor auditorium. I like magic shows as much as you, Duncan, but we've got work to do, and it's not going to finish itself. Besides, we've seen Presto Pete before. I know, but his new opening trick is supposed to be awesome, replied Duncan, looking at Penny with his sad-eyed puppy face. Penny offered a no-nonsense glare in return, the one she'd seen her mom use whenever she wanted to get her dad's attention without raising her voice. Duncan quickly turned his eyes away from her, but only for a moment. Then he returned her look with an even sadder puppy face. Penny pretended that she was still trying to hold her stern look, but couldn't quite do it, and her face softened. Okay, we can get a study room and eat our dinner while we do our work, which should give us time to finish and still make Presto Pete's show. Duncan smiled. We're not supposed to have food outside the cafe. That's why we'll get a study room. We'll have to be careful when we eat and remember to take our trash out with us. Just like a picnic in the park, you bring it in and you carry it out. Okay, I'm game. The worst they can do is kick us out of the library, right? Penny nodded. As long as they didn't spill food on anything, she was fairly certain nothing worse could happen. Mrs. Roebuck, the librarian, gave them a suspicious look when they asked for a quiet room, away from those that were occupied. She looked at her computer screen for a minute before assigning them a room in the back corner of the second floor. Penny exchanged her library card for the room key. Mrs. Roebuck smiled at her. That's the quietest room in the library. Now you two enjoy yourselves. Then she winked at Penny. At least Penny thought she saw a wink. The kind people gave each other when they know the other person is up to something. She worried that Mrs. Roebuck knew about their food. But when she looked over her shoulder, Mrs. Roebuck was already helping the next customer. Their research wasn't as boring as she had feared. Babylonian society was governed by Hammurabi's code. More than an eye-for-an-eye justice, it established the values, rights, privileges, and obligations of the various people within the Babylonian society. As the highest class, the Amalu enjoyed more rights to retaliation for injuries, but paid higher fees and were subject to harsher punishment for crimes. The middle-class Mushkinu were free and made smaller offerings to the gods. The last class was the Ardu, who were slaves. They commonly ran businesses for their masters and could purchase their freedom and become Mushkinu or even Amalu. As fascinating as all of that was to Penny, it bored Duncan to death. The only saving grace, besides the cookies, was that with Penny's enthusiasm they finished with plenty of time to spare for Presto Pete's show. Duncan took the books back to the reference section and left Penny to gather their notes and hide the evidence of their illicit meal. When he returned, he found both of their backpacks ready to go, but there was a small black enameled box on top of his. What's this? he asked. It's a gift for you. I know I've been a bit busy lately and, well, I thought you might like it. Duncan opened it. His eyes widened when he saw the triskela. It's a Celtic triskela. I know you've been looking for something authentic to wear on your chain. Duncan was already taking his chain off so he could place the triskela on it. Where did you find it? A friend of Mr. Murden made it for me. 
Really? It's exactly what I've been looking for. And thank you. You didn't have to do that. Chapter 8 Pete opened the show by selecting a young girl from the audience to come up on stage with him. Duncan and Penny made it just in time to hear Pete introduce Lisa Cash, who received a round of applause. Okay, Lisa, I'm going to show you a new deck of cards. Some of the folks in the back of my audience may not be able to see that it's new. Would you examine the deck for them? She nodded. He handed her a brand new deck of cards. Lisa, please tell the audience whether this deck of cards has been opened. It's never been opened. Thank you, Lisa. Pete made a big show of taking off the cellophane. He shuffled the cards, fanned them, and bridged them ostentatiously. Shuffling without a table was very impressive and elicited oohs and ahs from the audience. All right, I think we've prepared this enough. Lisa, will you please hold this? I need to select another audience volunteer. She accepted the deck, and he called Wesley Carter onto the stage. Pete handed Wesley a black neckerchief. Do you know how to tie a good knot, Wesley? Yes, I learned all kinds of knots at Cub Scout camp. Okay, we don't need anything fancy. I'm going to sit on this stool, and I want you to tie this around my eyes. Please tie it good and tight. Not too tight, but tight enough so that I can't see. Pete sat down, and Wesley did as he was asked. Good job. Now, please take my hand and walk me over to Lisa. Thank you, Wesley. Now, Lisa, please take a card from the deck and show it to the audience, but make sure Wesley doesn't see it. Then put the card back into the deck. Lisa showed the seven of clubs to the audience. As Lisa put it back in the deck, Penny saw Pete's hand raise his blindfold. Then he reached out to the deck and flipped the card so that he could see it. She looked around, but no one else seemed to notice. Pete was quick-handed, but not that quick. Then it hit her. This was just like the food fight when no one saw her grab the tapioca from Mark's tray and hurl it across the cafeteria. Pete had moved extra-dimensionally, and only the misaligned could see it. She looked at Duncan. His brow was knotted as if he was concentrating on something, but he remained silent. Now, Lisa, I want you to think of your card. You must keep thinking of your card. Can you do that for me? Pete asked. Yes. Good. Now, Wesley, would you please reach into my right coat pocket, pull out what you find, and show it to the audience? Wesley pulled out a rubber chicken. A few members of the audience laughed. At the sound of their laughter, Pete said, Oh, dear me, you never know what kind of help you're going to get from audiences these days. I'm so sorry. Wesley, reach into my left coat pocket and don't think of rubber chickens. Wesley pulled out a sealed deck of cards. Since I don't hear any laughter, I assume you didn't find my other rubber chicken. Wesley laughed. It's not a rubber chicken. It's another new deck of cards. Very good, Wesley. Nice to see you're with the program. Please show the sealed deck to the audience. While Wesley did that, Pete turned his attention back to Lisa. Okay, Lisa, now that Wesley's finally got his part right, I need you to really think about your card. Just keep thinking about your card. Members of the audience, thank you for your patience. I think it only sporting that you lend Lisa your help. Is everyone okay with that? 
There were a few yas, shurs, and other words of agreement from the crowd, to which Pete responded, "'Well, well, don't strain yourself on my account now. I'm just trying to earn a living up here.' Scattered laughter rippled through the audience. "'Now, as hard as Lisa's concentrating, I'm just not quite getting the vibe. She needs all your help. Just picture the card in your mind.' While saying this, he placed the index finger of each hand against his temples and nodded his face in concentration. That's it? I'm beginning to see through the fog now. I think I'm getting it. Just keep thinking of her card. Now I'm going to channel your thoughts to my able assistant, Wesley. As he spoke, Pete took his two fingers from his forehead and reached out toward Wesley. He missed Wesley by a good two feet, flailing wildly through the air. A ripple of laughter washed over the audience. Wesley, remember the blindfold. Come on now, you've got to work with me. This is only a half-hour show. Laughter erupted from the crowd as well as from Wesley. After controlling himself, Wesley walked between Presto Pete's outstretched fingers. Are you ready now, Wesley? Wesley said he was, and Pete closed his fingers onto Wesley's forehead. Don't worry, Wesley. This almost never hurts. There was some more laughter. As a professional practitioner of the prestigious arts of the First Order, I now transfer the energy from the audience and Lisa to my most able assistant, Wesley. At Wesley's name, Pete made a great display of pulling his fingers away from Wesley's forehead. Wesley, are you all right? He nodded. Pete said to the audience, He's nodding, isn't he? At which point both the audience and Wesley laughed again. I take it by the audience's reaction that you are indeed nodding and okay. Is that correct, Wesley? Yes. Good to see that you're catching on. Now, We've taken the knowledge of Lisa's card contained in the mental energy of the audience and Lisa and transferred it to Wesley. To prove it, Wesley will now reveal Lisa's card to everyone. Take it away, Wesley. He didn't say anything. Wesley, it's okay to tell us Lisa's card. That's the point of the trick. Just yell it out. Anytime now. The audience is getting restless. There was another bout of laughter in the crowd. You don't want to know what happened the last time my assistant botched this trick. Let's just say that these library crowds can get pretty rowdy, so why don't you tell the audience what card Lisa chose? But I don't know what card she chose. You're not kidding with your pal Presto Pete here, are you, Wes? No, I don't think your magic worked. This time the audience roared with laughter. It's okay, folks, this happens sometimes. The energy transfer wires get crossed, high humidity, electrostatic energy, and technical stuff like that. In these conditions, the information just goes to the wrong place. Wesley, I think I can help you. Do you still have that unopened deck of cards you took from my pocket? Yes. Good. Please open it. Wesley did as he was asked. Now, please shuffle the deck and place it on my stool. As Wesley completed shuffling the deck and placed it on the stool, Penny sensed something different, and again she saw Pete reach out extra-dimensionally and place a different card on top of the deck. Just like the last time, no one else noticed except Duncan, who let out a barely audible, huh, when Pete rearranged the deck. 
Now, Wesley, take your magic wand and wave it. Before Pete could finish, Wesley interrupted him. But I don't have a magic wand. Oh, right, good point. Here, you can use mine. Pete pulled a wand out of his pants pocket and handed it to Wesley. As I was saying, wave the wand over the deck of cards and repeat. By the power transferred to me by Presto Pete, professional practitioner of the prestigious arts, I command Lisa's card to appear at the top of the deck. Repeat it three times, then tap the deck. Wesley did it. When he finished, Pete asked him to reveal the top card to the audience. The card was the Seven of Clubs. The audience thundered with applause. Pete asked his assistants Lisa and Wesley to take a bow and thanked them for taking part in the show. The rest of the show was similar, with Pete getting help from various audience members. He shredded a $1 bill, put the contents in an envelope, sealed the envelope, and had one of the audience members sign their name across the seal. He put the envelope in an empty magic bag, uttered some magic words, and miraculously, when the envelope was pulled from the bag and opened, the dollar bill was whole again. For that trick, he made several extra-dimensional switches, and Penny saw them all. Duncan seemed to see something, too. When the show was over, Duncan said he'd enjoyed it, but Penny knew something was bothering him. She smiled to herself. The first part of her plan had worked. Chapter 9 The Next Day The magic show was a good start, but it wasn't enough to fully open Duncan's mind to the truth. His curiosity was piqued. She needed to follow up before it faded. Neither Mr. Murden nor Master Poe could help her with this. To get Duncan alone, she invited him to her house after school for dinner and to work on their Mesopotamian project afterward. She also mentioned that there were still some oatmeal chocolate chip cookies left. She felt a little guilty about using her mom's cookies again, but she wanted to make certain their next meeting was at her house, where she was sure they would be alone. She spent most of the day trying to come up with the next part of her plan. At lunch, Mary and Grace Anderson were talking about Halloween. Can you imagine Duncan and Mark with lipstick? Mary said. Grace laughed. What if Duncan tries to kiss Penny and gets lipstick on her collar? Eighth grade protocol required Penny to respond with something like, In his dreams, or... Are you jealous? When Penny didn't say a thing, the sisters looked at each other, contemplating this breach. Mary opened her mouth, but Grace shook her head, silencing her twins next volley. Instead, she smiled knowingly and changed the subject. Penny's non-reaction confirmed her suspicions about Penny and Duncan, which was better than any tit-for-tat teasing. Penny always felt a little disconnected from her classmates, but the gap had grown since her training began. She was glad to finally get to swim practice. At least in the pool, it was easier to avoid unwanted conversations, and hard practices helped her clear her head. That afternoon was no exception. Coach Harlow was preparing them for the upcoming invitational meet. As a 13-year-old, Penny was now at the bottom of her age group, her events also became more challenging. No more 100 IM for her. 
She graduated to the 200 IM. She'd swum it before, but the third leg of the race, 50 breaststroke, was her Achilles heel. The intense stroke work at the beginning of the season helped, but she remained three seconds short of qualifying for states. Duncan wanted to qualify for every individual event. He'd already made it in his best events and was working on his off events. So while Penny swam with the IMers, he worked in the backstroke lane, which made it easier for Penny to avoid him during practice. The IMers finished early, and she waited for him outside the pool, trying to think of her next step. She glanced up into the trees and saw Master Poe perched on a branch. Any bright ideas? she asked. Before he answered, Duncan emerged from the pool. Hey, how's the world's record holder for the fastest I am with the slowest breaststroke doing? Penny moved her swim bag onto her shoulder, picked up her school backpack, and just shrugged. What's been with you today? You've been in a funk all day. Duncan's concern was written all over his face. Nothing. Come on, you can't fool me. Something's bothering you. You know how you are. You always try and keep things bottled up inside. That's not healthy. Penny desperately wanted to tell him, but this wasn't the right place. I guess I'm just feeling the pressure of everything. You know, the Monroe Project, our Mesopotamian research, and trying to qualify for states. It's a lot of things for me to juggle right now, and sometimes I feel like I'm sinking. I'll be fine. It's nothing you need to worry about. Just remember, I'm here for you. Penny nodded. Duncan had no idea how much she was counting on him to be just that. Let's head on over to your house and finish off those cookies. Penny gave him one of her pointed stares, and he added, Oh, and of course, work on our project. Together we can ease at least one of your worries. Penny smiled. She glanced back at the tree and saw that Master Poe was still there. Duncan followed her line of sight and furrowed his brow. What's that face for? I don't know, but something about that bird seems familiar. It's just a bird. I'm not so sure. I can't quite put my finger on it, but that big black crow. At which point he was interrupted by a very loud caw from the bird, which Penny heard clearly as raven. Duncan must have heard the word raven as well. Okay, if you insist, raven... Although I don't see that it matters anyway, something about that raven seems familiar. It's at the edge of my memory, but I can't quite bring it out. Does that ever happen to you? I think you're just tired from swim practice and excited about finishing off my mom's cookies. When in doubt, bring out the old reliable distraction tactic, she thought. Duncan took the bait and ran with it. You're probably right. Coach Harlow kept us ten minutes late today. I just need to replenish my energy. Let's go. With that, he started toward Penny's house. Penny glanced over her shoulder, but Master Poe was gone. As they turned onto the driveway, Mr. Preston opened the door and stepped onto the porch. I'm making spaghetti and meat sauce with my homemade garlic bread for dinner. It'll be ready in an hour. Would you like some milk and cookies now? The weather was pleasant, so they took their milk and cookies out on the front porch. Penny's mother was working at the Monroe this week and wasn't due home until just before dinner, if there was ever a perfect time for Penny to broach the magic show and the whole multidimensional universe problem, this was it. What did you think of Presto Pete's show last night? Duncan let out a sigh. It was okay. 
I thought he added a few new twists to his opening number that were unique. What did you think of them? I don't know what you mean. Are you sure? I swear there was something different about the show, but I just can't quite put my finger on it. Dropping any pretext of subtlety, she added, I thought you noticed it, too. You were doing that thing where you scrunch up your brows. You know, your concentration face. Duncan nodded his eyebrows together. Yeah, that's it. I don't know what you're talking about. Penny threw all caution to the wind. Do you mean to tell me you didn't see Presto Pete lift his blindfold and take a quick peek at the Seven of Clubs? You saw it, too? Yeah, I saw it, too. Is Pete losing his touch or something? Why didn't anyone else see it? I don't think Pete's losing his touch. He's always done that trick that way. I paid attention to the audience, and no one else put on a concentration face. So how do you explain it? Penny paused, but before she could offer an explanation, Duncan offered one of his own. Maybe he's always done that, and we just never noticed. You know, lighting and stuff like that. Like how they hide the wires on Peter Pan when the actor flies over the stage. That must be it. Lighting and shadows. We just sat in the right seats to break the illusion. Duncan sounded as if he was trying to convince himself as much as Penny. No, it wasn't a lighting trick. It was something else. Again, she paused, searching for the best way to bring up extra-dimensional translocation. Okay, if it wasn't some type of lighting illusion, what do you think it was? It was now or never. Not pausing for fear of losing her nerve, Penny said, It was a demonstration of extra-dimensional translocation by a person who's slightly misaligned with the dimensions of our universe. There, she'd said it. She wasn't sure how, but she finally let it out. Huh? Extra-dimensional translo-what by a slightly miswhere of our... What the heck are you talking about? The look on Duncan's face was a cross between confusion about what he'd heard and concern that maybe Penny was delusional, delirious, or perhaps both. I'm talking about the extra-dimensional universe and people with the ability to interact across those dimensions. This is some kind of joke, isn't it? You figured out that I was following you the other day and you're just trying to get even with me. That's it, right? No, Duncan, I wish it was a joke, but I'm dead serious. There are multiple dimensions in the universe, and some people can manipulate them. Those people are misaligned. She looked straight into his eyes. I'm one of them. You're one of what? I'm one of the misaligned. I can see across the dimensional boundaries. I can even reach through them and manipulate objects. It's the reason I've always had such strong nightmares, especially at Halloween. Duncan kept shaking his head. No, that's just crazy talk. You're the same girl I've known all of my life. You're just trying to put me in my place or something. Come on. Nice try, but you can't fool your buddy Duncan that easily. Penny sighed. Just as she feared, she told him the truth and he wasn't buying it. Then he gave her the inspiration she had been lacking all day long. Let's just suppose you're right, he said, smiling back at her. If that's the case, and what we saw was Presto Pete manipulating objects through the extra-dimensional universe, then why did I see it too? I'm not misaligned, am I? Penny shook her head. Then why did we see Pete reach across the dimensions? I mean, 
I've seen his show several times before and never noticed anything odd about it. Answer that one if you can, and maybe you've got something. Okay, will you listen to me if I can show you why we saw something and no one else did? Duncan smiled with confidence and nodded. If you can demonstrate extra-dimensional whatever and why I can see it, I'll be happy to listen. Penny smiled back at him. Thank you. Then she reached over and took one of the three cookies from his plate. Hey, what's the big idea? Okay, we know that you can see me take one of your cookies, at least in this dimension. She returned the cookie. Now, please take off your necklace and hand it to me. Duncan gave her a strange look, but did as she said. How many cookies are on each of our plates? Duncan sighed, but played along. Three. Penny concentrated, created a rift, then reached through it and moved a cookie from his plate to hers. She closed the rift and asked, Are you sure? Already nodding, Duncan looked down and saw two cookies on his plate and four on Penny's. He cocked his head to one side. I must have miscounted or something. There are four cookies on your plate and two on mine. Penny created another rift and took his remaining cookies. Are you sure? Before answering, Duncan looked at the plates and saw all the cookies on Penny's plate. He opened his eyes wide. How did you do that? Penny created another rift, but this time she took a bite from each of three cookies and placed the bitten cookies on Duncan's plate. He looked up from his plate where three bitten cookies suddenly appeared. Across from him, Penny chewed a mouthful of cookies. Okay, I don't know what you're playing at, but that's amazing. How'd you do it? Her mouth full of cookies, Penny didn't respond. So Duncan added, Yeah, yeah, I know, you reached across the universe and bit my cookies. Even if I buy that, I don't see anything like I did with Presto Pete, so you haven't met my conditions yet. Penny handed him his necklace. Hold it in your hand. She created another rift and grabbed one of his cookies. What did you see this time? You changed from solid to a little transparent. Or maybe it was translucent, I don't know. But I saw you reach out to my plate. Do it again. Penny did. This time, Duncan reached out to stop her, but his hand passed right through her arm. When it did, he gasped, dropped the necklace, and said, What the heck? I mean, I saw you, or at least... I thought I did, but I couldn't touch your hand, and then your hand seemed to dissolve, but somehow you stole my cookie. What just happened? She almost had him. She just needed to reel him in. You saw me create a rift and reach through it to take your cookie. That's something that only a misaligned person can do. What did my arm look like to you? She wasn't sure what the correct answer was, but she suspected it looked similar to the way she perceived the bodic. I could tell it was your arm, but it didn't look normal. It was kind of transparent, almost like a three-dimensional shadow, but with some colors, only blues, yellows, and reds, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. Just like Presto Pete, when he reached out and peeked at that girl's card. Come to think of it, yeah, just like that. Why couldn't I grab your arm? I mean, my hand passed right through it. Penny reached down to the table and picked up Duncan's necklace. This amulet enables you to see the higher dimensions. When you dropped it, you went back to normal. 
The gems in the triskela are the key. They channel the energy from the other dimensions and convert it to images that you see, but you can't interact with the images. Oh, so kind of like the holograms you always see in those sci-fi movies. Penny nodded. Yeah, just like that. You can see and hear things and perhaps even smell them, but you cannot touch them. Even though you can't directly interact with them, the inhabitants of those dimensions can take notice of you. You said the gems in the Triskela were the key. Earlier, you told me that you got the Triskela from Mr. Murden. Is that what you've been doing with him, learning about these higher dimensions? Yes. We'll get to Mr. Murden in a minute. Do you remember the food fight in the cafeteria a few weeks ago? Of course, he said, nodding. Um, I'm the one who started it. What do you mean? Mark Chapman and Gene Shoemaker started it. They had to stay after school and clean garbage cans until Miss Jane gave them time off for doing a good job. Are you saying you let them take the blame? Smiling meekly, Penny raised her hand and said, Yeah, I threw the first tapioca. I created a rift, reached across the table, grabbed Mark's tapioca, and heaved it at Jean. It was just luck that I hit him. He assumed it came from Mark and naturally retaliated. Things sort of deteriorated from there. No kidding. Why did you do that? I know you're not a big Gene Shoemaker fan, but he's not a bad guy, so why throw tapioca at him, and why drag poor Mark into it? It was instinctive. I didn't really know what I was doing. That was the first time my misalignment expressed itself outside of my nightmares. So yesterday was the first time you saw how Presto Pete really did his tricks, too? Penny nodded. Now, before I go any further... Do you agree that I've met your conditions and that you won't interrupt me, no matter how strange or outrageous you think I'm being? I agree. Penny told Duncan everything. She started with her nightmare and touched on her training with Mr. Murden, Simon as her guardian, the Bodock, and the danger of extra-dimensional entities using her to get into our universe. She concluded with the danger of the Halloween confluence. The only thing she left out was Master Poe. When she finished, Duncan didn't look at her. He just stared into his hand where he held the triskela. Finally, he said, Okay, I believe you, but you didn't answer my question about the triskela and Mr. Murden. How did he make it, and how does it work? You believe me. That's what I said. We've known each other as long as we both can remember. I think I would know if you were lying to me. Not only that, but you wouldn't have eaten my cookies if it wasn't a serious situation. He broke into that broad smile of his, the one that said, I'm here for you. Penny was full of contradictory emotions. She was near to bursting with joy at no longer being alone, as well as feeling a good dose of guilt for not trusting Duncan earlier. Without thinking, she reached over and took his hands in hers. She held his hands for a few moments before finally saying, Thanks. When she looked into Duncan's face, he lowered his gaze so she wouldn't notice he was blushing. She let go of his hands. As she did that, he looked up and asked, You still haven't answered my question about the Triskela and Mr. Murden. Oh, right. That's the one part of the story I haven't gotten to yet. While the stones technically came from Mr. Murden, he didn't give them to me. You see, there's... But before she could finish, a large raven flew across the yard and perched on the porch railing. 
Miss Preston was about to tell you that I am the one who told her where the gemstones were, and I'm the one who helped her make the treescala. Duncan dropped the treescala necklace from his hands. Turning to Penny, Master Poe said, Please tell him to put the necklace back on. Penny chuckled, picked up the necklace, and handed it to Duncan. If you want to understand, Master Poe, you need to put this back on. Remember what I said about the treescala? Yeah, I remember it connects me to higher dimensions, but you didn't tell me that I would hear crows talk. I'm not a crow. I'm a raven, and I'll thank you to remember that, Mr. O'Brien. As I was saying, before you dropped the treescala, my name is Master Poe, or at least that is what I am currently called. Hold on a minute now. Wait just a second here. What do you crows, excuse me, ravens, have to do with anything? Why is this bird talking to me? Duncan looked at Penny. Master Poe said to Penny, Not too bright, is he? Are you sure you've made a sound choice? I could help him forget this whole afternoon, and you could pick someone else. How about that Chapman fellow? He seems like a smart young man, and you do owe him for the food fight. That's true. I did promise to make it up to him. Duncan's mouth dropped open as he switched his gaze back and forth between Penny and Master Poe. No, Master Poe, I made the right choice. I should have told him earlier, but he's definitely the right one. Master Poe shrugged his wings. Okay, but don't say that I didn't offer. Penny smiled. Don't worry, you're off the hook if he doesn't work out. Duncan finally found his voice again. If I can only understand him when I'm wearing the necklace, and the necklace allows me to perceive the higher dimensions, then he must be... That's right, I'm from the higher dimensions. Master Poe turned toward Penny. You know, perhaps I was a bit hasty in my judgment. Maybe he's not as thick as a brick. Hey. It's all right, Duncan. Master Poe can be ornery. Which drew a cackle of derision from the bird. But without his help, I wouldn't have the treescala, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. Duncan looked at Master Poe, then back to Penny. I thought the whole point of your training with Mr. Murden was to keep higher-dimensional beings from entering our universe. Penny nodded. Then why are we working with him? Before answering his question, she looked at Master Poe. Do you mind if I tell him your story? If I leave anything out, you can always help me. Be my guest. Penny told him everything she knew about Master Poe. She finished by telling Duncan it was Master Poe's idea to add him to the team. You did well, Penny. I believe your mother's car just turned onto the street, which is my cue to leave. Wish me luck with Murden. And with that, he flew off. Do you trust him? Yes, I do. Given what I've been through, I have to trust someone. Besides, he's already helped me so much. How so? Without him, you'd still be following me around, trying to figure out what Bella and Jack were up to. Her mismatched eyes sparkled as she added a smile. Duncan's cheeks flushed red. I thought I was undetectable. Oh, I didn't see you. Master Poe did. That's when he approached me about giving you the treescala. It's why I was late yesterday. Her dad stepped through the door onto the porch. Penny, why don't you and Duncan come in and help me get dinner on the table? I promised your mother it would be ready when she walked in the door, and it's going to be close. Penny and Duncan nodded and followed her dad into the house. By the way, did either of you happen to notice what all of those crows were so upset about? They both responded, Ravens.
Chapter 10 Jean Shoemaker and Eddie Masias were the first students to present their Mesopotamian project. Their subject was Babylonian mathematics. Jean stood at the front of the class. The Babylonian math system was a sexagesimal system based on 60. They chose 60 because it was evenly divisible by many numbers. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 20, and 30, which made it easier to work with fractions. This was especially important when dividing shares and profits for businesses. They used the same system in their study of the heavens, which is the origin of our astronomy. That's why we have 360 degrees in a circle, 60 minutes in an hour, and 60 seconds in a minute. That sounds pretty complicated. How did they keep track of all those fractions? Eddie asked. They made clay tablets with the solutions to common math problems, Jean said. Like a cheat sheet? Eddie asked. Exactly. Using the tablets, Babylonians could solve a quadratic equation and even certain cubic equations. I wish I had those for my algebra test, Eddie said. You're in luck. I just happen to have a few tablets here. Why don't we pass them out to the class and let them solve problems like a Babylonian? We can make it into a contest. Can we give prizes? Eddie asked. How about these coupons for ice cream in the cafeteria? Eddie and Jean gave a brief lesson on how to use the tablets, passed them out to the class, and awarded the coupons to the winners. Lisa Giambi, Janet Simkowski, and Stacy Gold started differently. Lisa stood silently to one side, while Janet and Stacy alternated reading from flashcards about the Babylonian diet. They covered the basics. Most people ate two meals a day, one in the morning and one in the early evening. The meals consisted primarily of fruits, vegetables, cheese, and occasionally some dried goat or fish. Without a clean water supply, they drank a honey-spiked beer. Penny tapped Duncan on the shoulder and whispered, Lisa's freeloading again. Before Duncan could respond, Lisa stepped forward in front of her teammates and knocked the note cards out of their hands. Enough reading from cards. Can't you see that you're boring the class to death? Stacy stood silently with her mouth and eyes wide open. With only slightly more composure, Janet said, What do you expect us to do? Good question. Did you know the oldest known recipes are from Babylonia, and that on special occasions Babylonians ate cakes made from butter, cheese, flour, and a mixture of dried fruits? Sure, but what's that mean to us? Janet asked. Stacy managed to regain control of her mouth and mumbled something incoherent. It means it's time to party, Lisa shouted. Before anyone knew what was happening, she slipped around Ms. Morgan's desk. She returned, pushing a cart filled with plates of apples, pears, apricots, figs, and pomegranates. The largest plate in the center contained two giant cakes. They looked just like two crustless cheesecakes with bits of fruit sprinkled on them. What are you waiting for? Come up and have some Babylonian cake! Lisa said. No one needed to be asked twice. Everyone rushed the front of the room. Janet and Stacy joined Lisa, doling out fruit and slices of cake. All the boys practically fell over themselves, telling Stacy, Janet, and Lisa how much they loved the presentation. Even Duncan couldn't help himself, saying to Penny as he went back for seconds, Can you believe that whole thing was an act? Stacy and Janet were just playing along. Penny nodded absently. 
She turned away from the spectacle at the front of the room and found the Anderson twins. Mary was staring toward the front of the room, where Jean Shoemaker chatted with Janet. Grace locked eyes with Penny. Grace said nothing. She didn't have to. Penny knew exactly what she was thinking. Why are boys so annoying? Penny nodded her agreement. While she watched the spectacle at the front of the class, Penny knew they needed to spruce up their presentation. It had been a long day. Mr. Murden returned to his office to find Master Pose standing on his in-basket rather than on one of the stacks of books. Through their many years together, he knew something had changed, and he wasn't going to like hearing it. To be honest, he knew it already. They'd argued about it several times— Master Poe never said he would do something unilaterally, but Murden knew his friend was capable of doing just that. Without taking further notice of the precariously perched bird, Mr. Murden sat down at his desk. He leaned back in his chair. He twisted the ring around his finger several times and reached for the bottom drawer of his desk. Master Poe said, They're not there. Murden opened the drawer anyway. The leather bag was there, but the black box was missing. He looked up from the drawer and stared directly at Master Poe. Tears blurred his vision as he gazed at his old friend. You shouldn't have given them to her. Master Poe remained silent. I suppose you helped her, and she's already used them. Master Poe bobbed his head up and down. No doubt she's brought that boy into this. Master Poe bobbed his beak. Murden shook his head. You shouldn't have given them to her. You know what happened the last time we used the stones. We nearly lost Art. Gwen broke his heart. We nearly lost everything. It was too big a risk to take. You shouldn't have given her the stones. You may be right. Every decision involves risk. But you must let go of the past— you need to trust Penny with her own decisions. Did she make her own decisions, or did you make it for her? You know I would not decide for her. How could you be so irresponsible? Murden's voice cracked. She's so young and inexperienced. She doesn't understand the risks. What could she possibly say that would convince you to give her the stones? I asked her to tell me what she was feeling— do you know what she said? Master Poe paused for a moment, but Murden only scrunched his eyebrows in response. She said that she felt alone, not afraid or special or different, but alone. Now Murden understood why Master Poe had given the stones to Penny. For all of his abilities and powers, Master Poe was an exile. If anyone knew what it meant to be alone and how valuable a friend could be, it was Master Poe. He softened his expression and nodded. Just because I understand it doesn't mean I like it. Now our enemies have another way to get to her, not to mention the peril for the boy. Yes, I know we've increased the danger, but I believe having a friend you can count on is worth the risk, wouldn't you say, old friend? Murden's face broke into a soft smile. Of course, now that he's on the team, I'll need to schedule a few basic training sessions with the boy. Does that present a problem? 
No, it shouldn't. As counselor, I often meet with students. By the way, what form are the stones in? We wove them into a necklace for Gwen. He's wearing them as a charm on a silver necklace. What sort of charm? You'll appreciate this. She fashioned them into a Celtic treescala. Rather fitting, don't you think? Murden simply shook his head. He thought about the adage that the more things changed, the more they stayed the same. Silently, he hoped that this time they could break the cycle. Duncan spread a few books on the library table. We've got less than an hour to spice this up. What's your plan? Penny sighed. Well, I figured out that a gera equaled $20, a shekel $400, and a mina $24,000. That's helpful, but reciting passages from the code is still as exciting as fishing in the bathtub. We need a hook, or we're going to put everyone to sleep. Penny nodded. Keep reading. Maybe something will pop up. After a few more minutes, Penny said, I hate to say it, but Jean and Eddie had a good idea. Duncan stared at her with his mouth slightly open. What I mean is, their subject was at least as boring as ours, but they made it fun by turning it into a game. We could do the same thing. How so? We script a few situations covered by the code and assign them roles to play. We'll act as judges and apply the code. That could be good, especially if we let a few classmates in on it. It took the better part of an hour to create the scripts. Penny knew their presentation was better, but it was still missing something. While Duncan returned some of the books, Penny leafed through one depicting typical Babylonians. She found exactly what they needed. Duncan wasn't going to like it. To win him over, she would need a plan. She had all of swim practice to think of one. Penny opened their presentation with an overview of Babylonian society and Hammurabi's code. Then she passed out cards assigning each person to the modern equivalent of a Babylonian class. The Amalu cards listed occupations like doctor, builder, or politician. The Mushkanu included jobs like truck driver, technician, or stylist, while the Ardu cards listed no occupation. Penny began to explain what they were going to do when Ms. Morgan interrupted her. Ms. Preston, where's your partner? This is a group assignment where teamwork is part of your grade. Are you going to do this entire presentation yourself, or is Mr. O'Brien going to grace us with his presence? Several students chuckled. Ms. Morgan's understated sarcasm always amused her students, especially the boys. He'll be here in a minute. At least she hoped that was the case. As expected, he hadn't greeted her plan with enthusiasm. Penny finished her explanation to the class and passed out the scenarios. Ms. Morgan looked down at her watch and back to Penny. She was about to give up on him when Penny saw Duncan outside the classroom door. She raised her eyebrows at the sight. She walked to the door and opened it just enough to get a good look at Duncan. She suppressed a giggle. He was in a long, tight-fitting green linen dress with a rounded neckline that plunged several inches down his chest. It had short sleeves and fringes along the bottom just above his ankles. He wore leather sandals and a broad leather belt high on his waist. He had wide, bronze-colored bracelets on both arms and a gaudy ring on his left index finger. He also carried a rolled parchment. 
Even more striking was his wig of long, tightly curled black hair held back from his face by a leather band. He wore a beard of similar hair that reached to his exposed chest. To complete the ensemble, he wore dark eyeshadow under his eyes. Duncan drew the line at using real eyeshadow and instead wore the black, no-glare eye grease used by athletes. Are you ready? I feel like I'm wearing Aunt Betsy's drapes. You should have seen the look I got from Mr. Parsons. Gym class is going to be rough tomorrow. Don't worry about it. I had doubts about Marianne Grace's idea to cross-dress for Halloween, but if they hadn't insisted, we couldn't have pulled this off so quickly. I'm still not sure we've pulled anything off. Stop it. You look great. Duncan rolled his eyes. Seriously, it's time for Hammurabi to make his grand entrance and serve some Babylonian justice. With that, she opened the door and, quoting directly from the code, proclaimed, Hammurabi is a ruler who is as a father to his subjects, who holds the words of Marduk in reverence, who has achieved conquest for Marduk over the north and south, who rejoices the heart of Marduk his lord, who has bestowed benefits forever and ever on his subjects, and has established order in the land. On cue, Duncan walked through the door and proclaimed, in a deeper voice than normal, Anu and Bel called by name Mi Hammurabi, the exalted prince who feared God, to bring about the rule of righteousness in the land, to destroy the wicked and the evildoers so that the strong should not harm the weak, so that I should rule over the black-headed people like Shamash and enlighten the land to further the well-being of mankind. The class greeted him with silence. Most weren't sure what to make of his strange costume. Several of the boys looked around, trying to decide if it was okay to laugh. Penny knew they had to take control of the situation before laughter broke out, because once it started, their presentation would be ruined. They asked Mark Chapman to help by taking the role of the first petitioner in their presentation. All he knew was that Duncan would ask for claims from the class, and he would then read his card. Duncan called out to the class, As your leader, I have come to hear your complaints and dispense justice. Are there any claims? Nothing but silence. Penny thought she made a mistake in passing out the cards. She looked at Mark, who was staring at Duncan with a blank look on his face. Penny stared directly at him and cleared her throat. Mark shook his head and stood up. My name is Mark Chapman, and I swear by God that I contracted with Jack Hoskins to build a house, and the house collapsed because of his poor workmanship, destroying all of my belongings. That broke the ice, and the rest of the team read their lines from their cards. Eddie Masius was another unsatisfied customer of Jack's whose house collapsed and killed his son. Duncan made a great show of unrolling the scroll he was carrying and read from it, quoting the code. If a builder builds a house for someone and does not construct it properly, and the house which he built falls in and kills its owner, then that builder shall be put to death. If it kills the son of the owner, the son of that builder shall be put to death. If it ruins goods, he shall make compensation for all that he has ruined, and, inasmuch as he did not construct properly this house which he built, and it fell, he shall re-erect the house from his own means." Duncan re-rolled the scroll. By my code I proclaim that Jack Hoskins must pay Mark Chapman for the goods he has lost and make repairs to his house. I also decree 
that since the son of Eddie Masius died in a house improperly built by Jack Hoskins, not only must Jack rebuild Eddie's house at his own expense, but Jack's son shall be put to death. It was a bit petty, but Penny and Duncan had agreed that Jack should be the builder for the scenario. By casting him in a non-speaking role, they limited his chances to cause trouble. The fact that being punished would annoy him was just a bonus. They went through several more scenarios without any incident. They finished by leading a class discussion comparing the code to Western law. While they might not have been as popular as the presentations with prizes or food, they got their points across. The purpose of Hammurabi's code was to ensure order and to fairly resolve disputes. It utilized sworn testimony and established penalties for violations. The details were different, and no one wanted to live under Hammurabi's code, but everyone learned that it was more than an eye for an eye justice. Now that Penny has successfully brought Duncan onto her team, what role will he play? And what danger does this new artifact pose? Is the Grimalkin responsible for the disappearing cats in Piper Falls? And what does that mean for Simon? Find out by tuning in to our next episode. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to Penny Preston and the Raven's Talisman now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our audiobooks are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. You can find Armin Pogarian on his website at arminpogarian.com and make sure you follow us on social media at camcatbooks. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on Camcat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.